Good evening, my name is Alexandra Jones and together with Dr Melinda Reeve, I'm one of the conveners of the inaugural Food Governance Conference which is happening here in the coming days as a joint activity of the Charles Perkins Centre and the Sydney Law School. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I'd also like to note just a couple of administrative matters before we begin. As you may know, this theatre is an internet black hole, um, but we would like to encourage you to tweet. <laughs> you might have seen before that there was a screen which had a Wi-Fi um, access name and password. Uh, if you didn't get it, the network is Sydney Ideas Food and the password is foodgov2016. Our hashtag is foodgovernance2016. <coughs> I'm now uh, very excited uh, and it is my great honour to welcome the Chancellor, Belinda Hutchison, to open the event. Thank you, Alexandra, and um, welcome everybody. This is um, a great event and I'm truly delighted to be here. And I'm actually honoured to be able to welcome you all here today to this conference because I think it's just a very, very important area that we need to continue to focus on here at our university. But let me start too by paying my respects to the elders past, present and future of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation who have been teaching and learning here on these lands for tens of thousands of years and we want to continue their great traditions. This conference, this food governance conference, as I said, is very important for us as a university and we're absolutely delighted that Professor Karina Hawkes has agreed to join us this evening to give this public oration. And she has flown in this morning at 6am from the UK, so we think she's doing very well to be here. She did say she'd had a minute or two sleep this morning and I'm very pleased for her that she's done that. But she's going to out out outline for us some universal concerns in about ensuring equitable, safe, nutritious and sustainable food supply. And these matters are a key research priority for our university. Here on campus, we're proud of the initiatives such as the Healthy Sydney University program. And it's all about having a healthy campus and making sure that we have projects that our academics are working for spread out throughout the university. And we're delighted to host this conference because it showcases the role of law, policy, regulation in promoting nutritious diets and good health for all. We are so fortunate in this country to be able to have what we have, plentiful and nutritious food supply for the majority of us. We are a very lucky country. Only two weeks ago, I was in Malawi, one of the poorest countries in the world. And I must say, I found it very distressing and confronting to see what real hunger and real poverty is all about, just particularly amongst the children. My family's been associated with a group called The Hunger Project now for about 10 years, and we've been working with a group of villagers, about 10,000 in total, trying to end hunger <coughs> and poverty. And I must say, it was very exciting. The thing that was uplifting about that visit was the fact that we had a self-reliance ceremony whereby 50% of that community group has ended hunger and poverty by the introduction of better agricultural techniques, hybrid grains, fertiliser, 
food production has increased from 600 grams, kilograms per acre to 2,000 kilograms per acre. There's been the introduction of fresh water, there's been the introduction of other special plants like moringa to help them with vitamins and things like that. But it is remarkable what can be achieved and we need to stay the course with programs like that and programs like we are looking at at our university. Because Australia, as I said, is a very fortunate country, but it, we are not without our problems. Diseases such as diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, now account for 90% of all deaths in Australia. It's an absolutely staggering statistic. And healthy diets are absolutely cru crucial to ensuring health and well-being in our Australian community. And I'm very pleased tonight we are going to hear about some of the issues that our Indigenous people face around nutritious <coughs> diet. The Charles Perkins Centre, as we all know, is absolutely dedicated to fighting the global scourge of obesity, diabetes and cardiovascular disease together with the related conditions. The researchers here are doing amazing work and the multidisciplinary nature of the centre is contributing to some of the most innovative research and teaching in the world. The team here, based in this amazing building of which you're now part, is making a real difference. Much of that difference comes from recognising that the causes and consequences of serious medical conditions may often lie beyond biology. Solutions cannot be found or implemented by the health sector alone. Indeed, the Food Governance Conference is a collaborative effort between the Charles Perkins Centre, the Sydney Law School, with sponsorship from the George Institute of Global Health and the University's Cancer Research Network. Over the next two days, this conference will bring together policymakers, advocates, and of course researchers to consider real-world solutions to the most pressing issues facing the food system in the 21st century. And I'm sure tonight will be an absolute fitting and fascinating start to this conference, and I'm really looking forward to listening to Karina and the other panelists. Thank you very much for having me tonight, and welcome again. I think one other thing I think I forgot to mention was that this event is being recorded uh, for ABC Radio. All right. Without further ado, uh, Professor Karina Hawkes is the Director of the Centre for Food Policy at City University in London. She also co-chairs the independent expert group of the Global Nutrition Report, which tracks global progress on malnutrition in all its forms. Karina has worked internationally for over 15 years as a researcher, advocate and advisor to governments and international agencies on food policy solutions that improve public health. Without attempting to list them all, she's worked at the World Health Organization, International Food Policy Research Institute in Brazil, and recently at the World Cancer Research Fund International, where she established the Nourishing Framework, which is a resource so useful in listing all the recommended policies that governments should adopt that I literally keep it pinned above my desk. Please join me in welcoming Professor Karina Hawkes to speak to us about the three biggest challenges facing the food system and how we fix them. Thanks very much, Ali, and thanks very much to the Chancellor for that uh, great introduction. And thanks for you for coming tonight. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here in Sydney. I did fly in this morning, but boy, what a wonderful city to, to fly into and to, to be out in the sun this afternoon. It's really wonderful to be here. 
So I'd really like to thank uh, Ali and Belinda for inviting me. I'm particularly pleased to see such young, bright, smart minds, the minds of the future, um, organising this, this meeting and this, this conference. It's so important to have the next generation coming in, coming in behind. So um, thanks very much for inviting me and for organising this conference. Um, when it comes to thanking you for giving me the, the, the subject you wanted to talk to me, uh, wanted me to talk to, um, I did have some doubts at some point, uh, simply because it's such an immensely difficult question, and I have grappled and wrestled with it, and it's actually been a really, really informative process and a learning process for me to have to try and answer this question. So at the end, I was very grateful for the fact that you gave me this question to answer because it was a learning experience for me. And what I want to do for the next 40 minutes or so is to, is to share what I, what I came up with. So what are the three biggest challenges facing the food system and how do we fix them? Well, the story is not a very merry one. We know that the food system faces multiple problems, and I'll be giving a very global perspective. My work takes an international and global focus. Let's just start with water, the fountain of human life. We know that 40% of people in the world live in dry places where groundwater, the water that comes up through the ground, is vital for drinking and vital for food production. And we know that that groundwater is beginning to run down, or more than beginning, it has been running down for some time. And there is a depletion of groundwater, and that's a real challenge for food producers. But we also know that agriculture itself is partly responsible for using this groundwater. So in other words, the food system is facing challenges from the outside, but it's also creating a lot of problems. It does both. And climate change is another example of this. If you think about the whole food system, so when I'm talking about the whole food system, I'm talking about everything, the infrastructure, the entities, the people, the processes, the interactions that take food from farm to fork, from boat to throat, from gate to plate. And the processing, the trading, the distribution, the retailing, all, everything that happens in between is, is the food system. And if you take all of that together, the best estimates suggest that 20 to 30% of global, global greenhouse gas emissions come from the food system, which of course we know cause climate change. And then we know that climate change itself produces problems. It increases the risk of, uh, of infectious diseases because it changes the living conditions for insects and other things. And it also has economic implications for the millions and millions of farmers around the world, including here in Australia, but perhaps particularly for the millions of farmers in Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa who are entirely dependent on agriculture for their livelihood and for whom drought can spell absolute disaster. <coughs> And the workers in the food system don't just face economic vulnerabilities, but unfortunately, we do not treat them well. We know above here in Australia, in Asia, the conditions on fishing boats that provide the world with its much of its fish is absolutely appalling. It has been called modern day slavery. 
where I live in Cambridgeshire, which is towards the east of England, which is a, a place, a county where lots of fruits and vegetables grow. We know there is a lot of illegality and, uh, of, the, of the gangs of people who pick our fruits and vegetables. So the people who are picking the healthiest vegetables, the healthiest foods that we can eat, are actually living in inhuman conditions just a few miles away from where I live. And of course, workers are of course exposed to a tremendous number of health risks, such as exposure to toxic pesticides, respiratory diseases, or just the mental stress of working a very long hours, zero hours contract job in a supermarket. So for all the trouble that this causes, 30% of what we actually produce never gets eaten. That's because it's spoiled or it's wasted. And if, it, if any municipality will tell you it's a nightmare to deal with food waste, if you're living in an urban slum in a developing country, it's even worse because you have to live, work, and play in it because that's where it gets dumped. And then much of the food that is produced, or a lot of food, uh, not a majority, but a lot of food is contaminated at some point in the food system, leading to dire statistics for food safety, which is bad enough for specific outbreaks that kill people in high-income countries, but even worse for the millions of kids who die as a result of diarrhoea each year in developing countries. And the big issue at the global level, which the United Nations recently took on in their meeting in September, is what's termed antimicrobial resistance, where we are becoming, as a human species, more resistant to the antibiotics we take to treat disease. And one of the reasons for that is overuse of antibiotics in intensive animal production. And this is the area that I work on most, and most of the examples that I'm going to be speaking to later come from this area. What we are eating. I don't need to read out the statistics here, but sure enough to say we are eating unbalanced diets which are killing us. Some people just don't get enough to eat. Some people, particularly children, are not having sufficiently nutritious diets, which means they're not growing properly. And many more, up to 2 billion is estimate, are deficient in, micronu uh, dif uh, in micronutrients, leading to things like iron deficiency anemia. So the problems of the global food system, and I haven't even mentioned all of them, are many. There are many, many challenges. And the irony is this. Food, of course, is a wonderful thing. It's the source of human life. And for many of us, it's a source of a lot of pleasure. The idea that in our difficult days, we can have a break, we can eat something and take pleasure from it. It's something that everyone in the world deserves. But unfortunately, that's not the state of the modern global food system. The food system instead has become a source of dread and human <coughs> suffering. And it's the people who are suffering whether it be from disease, whether it be from economic um, problems, whatever the problem, it is people who are suffering from it. So if that's the case, why did we find ourselves in this situation where something that was meant to be so joyful has become so difficult and problematic? One of the reasons that I, I think might be the case, this is just me guessing, but it's how I like to think about it, is that the food system seems very far away from us. It's something out there, distant. 
it's the, the, the global the, the globe warming up or it's some water far away or it's some worker that to be honest we don't really want to think about when we're eating our food it's something far away and therefore the problems are far away and so it's been very difficult to deal with them because they are so far away but in fact when you think about it food systems are very very omnipresent in our everyday lives. So I've shown this slide before, and it's a slide uh, I took of um, my own personal food system over the space of a few weeks one summer. And I like to show it because I like to think of us thinking about our own personal food systems. So this was the veg box that arrived. It was my mainstream supermarket order that arrived. It was me putting um, some um, food packaging waste in the trash. It was me putting my dinner plates in the dishwasher. All of this is part of the food system. And then if you go out of the house, of the home, and start to look through a food system's lens at the world, you see that the food system is everywhere. Whether it's a shop, whether it's a boat, whether it's a cow, whether it's a factory, as this is, whether it's a boat shipping grains and so on around the world whether it's a field with geese in it that grows sugar beet. All of this is part of the food system. And if we actually open up our eyes and look at the world through a food system <coughs> lens, we can begin to see it. And we can begin to make connections with the food system. And we can think, begin to think about potential solutions. And there are many. There are many. There are no shortage of solutions that are being proposed to fix the problems of the global food system. But often these solutions are single issue. They're not always single issue, but they're focused on solving particular problems. They're put forward by particular interest groups. It's a very noisy space. Think of all of those different problems. But once we start to connect with our food system and to make the connections, we begin to see that all of this is connected. That obesity is actually connected to climate change. That food security is connected with obesity. That food safety is linked with undernutrition. That food waste is linked with many of these problems. So we begin to make the connections. However, this is not the way that most decisions are made in the food system. And if I can think of one thing that underpins all of these different problems in the food system. Because that's the biggest challenge, is what underlies and unites all of these different problems that I've just outlined. It is that the decision-making processes that we use to deliver solutions are simply not fit for purpose in delivering those solutions. What do I mean by decision-making processes? I mean that the people who make the decisions, the way that they connect together, what influences them, and importantly, how they make decisions. And this is what the term food governance means to me, and why I was so happy to come to talk to this conference, because in my evolution over what's approaching 20 years, I have realised that unless we fix the food governance problem, we're not going to be fixing the food system at all. 
Let me break it down into the three core challenges I was asked to talk about. Why is it that decision making isn't working to fix and to deliver the solutions to the global food system? First of all, that policy making is disconnected and incoherent. Second, language is confusing and exclusionary. Third, leadership lacks curiosity and courage. Let me go through each one to um, speak to what I mean in each case. Challenge one, policy disconnectedness and incoherence, that the spaces, interests and people involved in making decisions are not connected and coherent. Let me give three examples. I think there are three important aspects to this. And the first is, is that decision ma decisions made about food systems problems are made in different spaces. Let me give the example of underweight and overweight. What you have on the left-hand side of the slide there it is, a, is a decision that has been made by a different group of people to the decision on the right. So what you can see there is the outcome of that decision. We need to step back and understand better about how these decisions are being made and the outcome. So the decision on the left um, is a decision that was made in Lebanon and Syria a few weeks ago about the fact that there's worries about food insecurity because of the conflict and refugee crisis. So we need to deliver them some school meals, let's get, the problem is scarcity, let's get food in through the door, oh it happens to be muffins and juice. That's okay because that's going to deliver to this need. On the right hand side, it's a different group of decision makers. They're the decision makers in the countries of the Middle East who are developing school canteen guidelines because there's a serious problem of obesity and overweight in that region. So they're developing guidelines. I don't muff I mention muffins. I don't mention orange juice either for that matter. Those muffins are not included on those guidelines. They're making decisions about trying to encourage more fruits and vegetables, basic whole grains and low-fat dairy and modest amounts of protein. Different sets of decision makers. They're trying to reduce consumption of fatty foods in this case, but on the, on, the, on the left the decision is made about just delivering calories. As long as it's calories, it's okay. One decision mindset is about not having enough food, the other decision mindset is about having too much, and they're two different sets of decision makers. And that reflects the history of how underweight and overweight have been dealt with by decision makers all over the world. So is it any surprise then that rather than seeing a transition from underweight to healthy weight around the world, we're seeing a transition from underweight to overweight? Because the people who are thinking about overweight are not thinking about overweight. They're thinking about being underweight. As a result, decision makers are ending up multiplying the problems rather than replacing them. The other aspect of decision making is that decisions are in different spaces, but they also serve different interests. Let's look at sugary drinks. We know in Australia, in my country, around the world, people are consuming, kids are consuming too many sugary drinks. So let's have a look at some decisions that are made around these sugary drinks. Health departments everywhere trying to reduce intake of sugary drinks, attracts as labelling, public awareness, bans, etc. There are these efforts to try and get kids and others to consume less sugary drinks. Somewhere else in that same government, there's another department who deals with competition law. And they're interpreting competition law that permits mergers and acquisitions that strengthen the strategic position of the sugary drink companies that actually helps them survive and grow. But it's not only different parts of government 
it's the soda companies themselves. They are making decisions all the time which completely are counter to what health departments are trying to do in the sense they are trying to survive as companies. So if you go and look at the literature, the company literature, you'll learn that because carbonated soft drink consumption is going down in, in high income countries, which it is, including in Australia, that they're restructuring to save costs so it means they're not going to take a profit, uh, profitability here. Now they're also doing lots of other things too around producing low sugar drinks and so on, which is fine. But the point is they're trying to maintain themselves as a business, particularly by then taking their business to the developing world. Since 2010, investing billions and billions in facilities and distribution in <coughs> developing countries to grow their markets there, and enormous amounts of money in marketing to try and sell their product. So what you have is a decision-making difference between these different interests that is in conflict and indeed inefficient because there is no agreement on what the outcomes should be. And the third aspect of these um, incoherent decision-making processes is that decisions are disconnected with people's lived experiences. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're somebody who drinks sugary drinks and someone says we're going to ban them, we're going to, in schools, or we're going to put a tax on them, let's just say it's a tax. That's fine, that's a appropriate, appropriate solution, Nothing, no problem with that at all. But couldn't it be designed better? Couldn't policy be designed better so that the policy response is going to be more effective? And the way that we can do that is actually to go and talk to people about why they eat drinks, sorry, sugary drinks. You would not believe how few papers there are on this in the academic literature, like three. And there's an enormous amount of work on sugary drink intake. And the few that there are, when you actually go and talk to them, they say things like this, soft drinks keep my child content. And when I read that, it really reminded me of when I lived in, in New York City and I used to get the, the subway train home from, uh, if I was out late at night, from midtown or downtown to uptown. And that was the train that went to a much poorer part of the city called Harlem. And um, it was very frequent, very frequent that I would see women with their babies or young children giving them uh, soft drinks in bottles or in the bottle itself or in the baby bottle with chips. And this is a long time ago. And I was appalled when I saw that. How can these people do it? My goodness, you know, this is sick in the head. You know, this is child abuse. I, you know, this person was very upset by it. But I saw it so often, I thought, hang on a minute, I think I need to try and understand this. This is a woman late at night with a young child. She's probably been out a very long time. She might be commuting, she might be picking up her kid from a child minor. She's had a really, really long day. And we all know, those of us who are parents, how difficult it is to look after a crying child when we ourselves are extremely exhausted. It's actually quite a good reason why giving their child soft drinks, if their belief is that it is helping the child be content. And when you actually again go and look further, you find reasons like, I drink soft drinks because I don't tr trust the water supply, because I don't see anything wrong with it, um, because there aren't any good alternatives available. Actually, when you start to talk to people about why they are making decisions, you can actually start to think, let's have these population level interventions, that's fine, but let's actually think about other things we need to do to make those policies more effective. 
So think about the nature of our society, think about the nature of income, think about the nature of work, about long commutes and what that means for people preparing food at home, for thinking about investing in water supplies in the many, many countries around the world where people consume soft drinks because they don't trust the water. There are other things that we can do and we can become more effective in doing if we actually go <coughs> and talk to people. And it means by not doing it, it means policymakers are not advancing solutions that are um, adequately effective. But this disconnection with people also means that decision makers are less able to manage conflict. Because let's face it, there is an enormous amount of conflict in the food system. I referred earlier to the soft drinks industry having conflictual goals with goals of health departments. And that can get very tricky. And they can become this big evil industry out there. I have to say, when I wake up um, this morning on, on my flight coming in, I started chatting with my neighbour, and he was next to me, and, um, and we had a nice chat and said how good the flight was. And, uh, and, he, and he started talking about what he did, and he turned out he was the IT lead, the I, uh, IT lead for um, Domino's Pizza, which is um, a company that delivers pizza, being in Germany and the United States to improve their online delivery service. That's what his job was. He's a really nice guy. Really nice guy. If I'd stood there and said, you evil guy for selling Domino's pizza, he just wouldn't have got it. It's like, evil guy, sorry, you know, what are you talking about? He's a person in the food system. He's a person. We need to understand better the people who are actually working in these companies and working in the food, uh, the, um, uh, the food system in order that we can have a much more productive form of engagement and to treat these everybody, everyone in the food system, every entity in the food system, and remember that it's made up from people. But that's an aside. The point I was going to make was around actually when we disconnect with the, the, the person as the, as the eater. This is in Egypt. Egypt has a long history of subsidies for sugar. So the government has made sugar very cheap, so it's been widely available for a very long time. And people consume tons of sugar. And according uh, to this uh, New York Times article, this is, was in the New York Times uh, International Edition two weeks ago, one-fifth of the population of Egypt has diabetes. Not a good situation. Not at all. But what the situation they're facing now is the sugar's getting taken away because the country's in economic crisis and people are beginning to riot about it. Now, there's a, there's a health person cited in this article saying this is actually really good because if we take the sugar away, people aren't going to get diabetes anymore. We've solved our health problem. This is great. You know, this is great. And they're right. It is good from a health perspective. But it isn't good to have rioting people. And it isn't good just to kind of say, okay, just let, let's just let them riot, at least they won't get diabetes. Um, we need to understand where people are coming from, that people in Egypt for decades and decades and decades have been weaned onto a high sugar diet. You can't just take it away overnight and not expect people to riot. So understanding that, that, um, that process is important. It doesn't mean you don't try and reduce sugar intake. It just means that you have to understand that there's going to be a conflict, and that conflict needs to be managed. Second challenge, the language of decision making. So just say that you think, okay, we're not getting the right people in the room, we need people from different parts of government, we need to kind of get the right kind of industry people, we need to get the people who are the eaters and the workers of the food system in the room, let's get them all in a room. That's going to be our way forward to a more dialogic approach, and that's what they're here. 
This is what I heard in a meeting I was at two weeks ago, the, the World Committee on Food Security, which is a big annual meeting of food in the food um, hosted by the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. MAM, CFS, FFA, WIC, FERG, SUN, PSM. Uh, now, I, I know what these terms mean because I work, this is my job. I know what these terms mean. But I know that half of the people in those rooms won't know what those terms mean because some of these terms are very familiar to the undernutrition community and some of them are much more familiar to the food safety com uh, community. Some of them are much more familiar to the community dealing with obesity and communicable diseases globally. So just imagine if you walk into that room and suddenly everyone is using a language you don't understand. For a start, you're not going to understand. For a second, you're going to feel stupid. And for a third, you're not going to want to come back. So we mustn't underestimate the basics of getting language, the way we talk right. And we have to start by improving um, how we can understand each other in explaining the language that we use. Things get even more complicated when we're using the same language differently, particularly when it's used to, to advance different vested interests. A few years ago, I became a little bit obsessed by this word preferences. I was working at the International Food Policy Research at the, at the time, which was staffed mainly by agricultural economists. And um, my job was to lead a programme that was looking at food systems changes to improve diets in developing countries, particularly with regard to the change to diet towards obesity and so on. And I used to, I was in the nutrition division, I used to go and talk to my uh, colleagues in the, in, uh, more dealing with um, the food systems piece of it. And I used to walk in and i say, um, you know, it'd be great to get some joint research set up. Um, what's happening, I said, is that the food systems are changing in developing countries and, um, people's, um, and it's altering people's preferences and so they're beginning to consume these unhealthy diets and it's causing a major health problem. I thought that was simple enough. Not so for the economist sitting opposite me. He just kind of looked at me and said, um, I, I'm not sure what you mean. Um, those people are eating the different diets because they already have preferences for those foods and the system's simply delivering it. Uh, what people eat is what, what people, people's preferences are just what their preferences are. So however much I try to explain that food environments and there's strong evidence that food environments influence what people eat, just didn't work. I couldn't understand. I thought I was just completely rubbish and inept. And it turned out I kind of was actually. I kind of was because I hadn't made any effort to understand their language. It's only afterwards, when I was doing research for a paper, that I understood that the word preference for an economist has an extremely specific meaning. It's part of their neoclassical economic theory of food choice, and it means something that is fixed and stationary. And if it isn't fixed and stationary, it doesn't work. It doesn't work in the models. So me talking about changing preferences, which came from the behavioral psychology literature, they didn't understand what I was talking about. We were talking past each other. And I honestly believe to this day that's one of the reasons why I never managed to get any proper joint research projects with those people. <laughs> but we need to talk about the word healthy. And sustainable falls into the same category that I'm going to focus on healthy. We are talking, as the Chancellor mentioned earlier, about creating a sustainable and healthy food system. There's not that many people who disagree with that. I've spoken to the largest agribusinesses in the world 
I've spoken to the smallest community groups. I've spoken to my daughter. We all agree that what we want is a healthy and sustainable food system. The trouble is, what does that look like when we can't even agree what healthy means? Look at this. The Chancellor mentioned earlier, by complete coincidence, the Hunger Project. This um, product is something called Plumpy Nut. It's a product made out of 30% peanuts, 30% vegetable oil, and 30% sugar. And if you feed it to, to kids with SAM, to use a great acronym, severe acute malnutrition, um, um, uh, for a few weeks they will get better. It's fantastically effective, fantastically effective at, at treating severe malnutrition. And it has become more and more widely used in situations um, where it is appropriate to be used. And as a result, organisations such as The Hunger Project and many other people who work on malnutrition quite rightly quite correctly say that this is a good product, it's a healthy product to treat severe malnutrition. Go and stand in a different space and think about it from an obesity, healthy eating perspective. And Maria Nessel, who I know has spoken here recently, raised this question on her blog, which reflected the concerns that many people have, that is it really a good idea to do this? this idea of giving sweet kids very sweet preferences from a young age and packages that, that they think that that's what food is. Well, no, it isn't. But actually, if you're a child that's dying, I think it's okay. The problem then becomes when the product is used out of context, and that's the problem, that it has started to be used much more widely than its original tension of dealing with severe and acute malnutrition. And then it moves into becoming something unhealthy. So in other words, whether it's healthy or unhealthy depends on the context in which it's used. Let me give you another example. This is some products from the uh, British uh, supermarkets, walnuts. Many people think of walnuts as being a very healthy food, according to the fact it's got a double red. We have a voluntary uh, stoplight system in the UK. Um, it's less healthy than the Sunbite crackers next to it, which have no um, red on them, but are made largely from kind of modified starches with various flavourings. Which do you think is healthier? You've got your opinion. Everyone's going to have a different opinion on this. Because by trying to define healthy in a very narrow way, which is very necessary and important from a pragmatic policy perspective, and I've done a range of reports on this whole issue of def definition, it's absolutely essentially to do this in order to apply decent policy. But the narrative at the edges, where we begin to argue about walnuts versus particular kinds of crackers, can really create a lot of noise and distraction from the main point that we are trying to promote health here. And for policymakers, they get confused, they get distracted, and frankly, they want to run away. So that means that we really have to stand back and understand how different people are receiving this language and how different people are using this language, rather than just getting caught up in a very tightly defined argument around the details. So for example, I lived in Brazil for a year and um, I went, uh, absolutely amazing experience, amazing. I flew over the Amazon from Sao Paulo and landed in Manaus, which is the capital of the uh, Amazonian region. And I was there because I was doing a project on the link between family farming and school meals in Brazil. And it was a consultation process between the Ministry of Agriculture and family farmers in the Amazonian region. And during the break, we went out to the break, there was a, a, a juice that was served 
um, and it was a juice that was traditional to the indigenous people in the, in the region. And it was made from a traditional fruit, uh, and um, it was very, very bitter. So literally half the glass was full of sugar. Half was juice and half was sugar. And that really struck me. I was like, um, is this healthy or not? Because the people there, the indigenous communities there, were saying, this is healthy. Because for them, it was healthy. And it was healthy because it was part of their culture and their heritage. The fact it had sugar in it was neither here nor there. Who was I to come in and say, shouldn't be having your sugar in your traditional juice? To come in as the expert from above telling indigenous people what they should or should not consider healthy. In other words, we have to consider it from people's perspective how people view what healthiness is rather than getting caught up in our own language. Because getting caught up on our own language has even more serious implications. I've worked a lot on trade policy. Trade policy is toxic. It's not a nice place to be. There is so much disagreement in the world of trade policy. Do we agree with free trade? Do we not agree with free trade? All the problems around trade and globalisation is a very difficult place. And it's a place where there's a lot of expert language used. If you go into a room and, and you say, I can't sell my onions. And someone says, well, you know what? Your country could actually alter its bound tariffs by 2% because you've still got some um, policy space there and there won't be a preference erosion if that happens. It's, it's quite difficult to understand what that means. But if you're somebody who's going in and actually talking about your lived experience of having experienced the negative side of trade, which is what happens in international forums, the experts think you're crazy. They think, I take the point, it's a bit of a shame they can't sell their onions, but we've got to talk about preference erosion. So this expert language, this idea that we have to be experts, brings with it its own language, a language, and then the people who are not able to speak that language are disqualified from that space, as it were. And I just had to, the best way of saying, saying this was simply citing uh, an academic who studies these areas. And when you don't feel listened to, you get angry. People get really angry. And, um, and that means that the decision-making process becomes very, very toxic and therefore less productive, which is why we've seen such a stalemate in trade policy development in recent years. But it also means that promising policies remain inadequately implemented because the experts have come up on high, implemented a policy, and the people who are involved in actually delivering that policy can't actually deliver it or don't feel able to deliver it in some way. So it actually also um, compromises delivery of policy. The last challenge is around leadership. This is a really complex space full of conflict. And I've given a lot of examples from nutrition, from obesity and undernutrition in particular, but I have looked at other areas and very, very similar things are happening in other areas as well of the food system. For me, what is really important to point out is the challenge of leadership. It is incredibly difficult to lead in such a complex space. It's incredibly difficult to lead. And we often talk about strong leadership, we talk about transformative leadership, and we know from the evidence that strong leadership and political prioritisation, strong political will are necessary prerequisites for success. 
whether it's in food systems or other areas. It just is. What I want to focus on is how do we try and encourage the kind of leadership that we need without actually stopping anyone from leaving because they feel so disempowered by the whole difficulty of it. And that to me is around curiosity and courage. I think what we don't see, what I haven't seen enough of in the last years, is the leadership that really is curious. It really wants to understand why there were different interests in the food system, why there were different spaces, and why they're proposing different solutions, why people are using different languages, just to try and figure it all out and make those connections. And then the courage to take this noisy, noisy, conflictual space and strategize and to take elements from the different solutions that are being proposed, rather than saying, it all has to be, for example, it's such a divided black and white space, so this is one example. For some people, it's all local, organic, slow, farmer sovereignty. Very, very valid arguments made in this space. For others, it's about globalization, intensive agriculture, being fast and efficient, and it's about consumers having sovereignty. And there's actually a lot of good arguments in that space as well. It's about understanding where these different arguments come from, managing and understanding that there is this noise has to be managed, and it's difficult to be managed, but it has to be managed. The second aspect of courage is to call out bad behavior. There are vested interests in the food system. There are conflicted interests. And I've called some of those out, some of them around industry, but some of them are also about us. Us, the so-called experts. I say us, let's just say me, I can't speak for you. Um, that we go in and we think that, you know, we're holies in that because we're trying to solve problems. We have interest too, everybody has interest, civil society has interest too. No one is free of interest, it's not just about the industry. And we need to call out behaviour by those interests when it, it crosses a line that we believe has been crossed as a society. Many years ago, one of the first projects I ever did on food uh, was around food marketing to children. So it's an area I've worked in ever since. And um, I was reading a lot of industry literature, which has since actually been removed from uh, the websites it was previously, previously at, um, which was talking about what I consider some of the rather gruesome aspects of advertising to children. And I found it so gruesome, going back to the, the guy from Domino's Pizza I met on the, on the flight this morning, I said, these people aren't evil, you know, but they're doing this. What is going on? What is going on? So I just went and read a couple of marketing textbooks and, and realised, you know, marketing is a really kind of a good thing uh, in its core principles, in, in that it's about identifying consumer needs and delivering services. And when it's done well, it, it's very good for people. It's good for us. It's good. The trouble is, is when it gets taken too far. So it's okay to have marketing in a modern society, this is my view. It's not okay for these companies, guess who they are, for these companies to say the philosophy is if you get them in grade school, as in if you get children, when they're in young, young, young school, you'll have them until they're, they're 90. In other words, they'll be eating our products until they're 90. It's not okay to say we're going to use advertising to work our way into the skins of younger people. It's not okay. And we need leaders, and that's my view, but we need leaders who can call this out and say, you know what, it's crossed the line. We're not going to have that in our society. That's not good enough. We need leadership that has the courage to do that. And another aspect of leadership that takes courage is to place people's lived experience at the centre of decision making. Because those solutions I mentioned to earlier, everyone behind those solutions, they have their vested interests too. 
And often, they come from the best possible places. Another project I worked on very, very early in my career was this issue about um, putting wasted food and giving it to people who don't have enough food in homeless charities and so on. And now, it seems, I don't know whether you use the term in Australia, but in Britain we use this term food banks, which is a term that originally came over from um, the United States, where wasted food goes and then people on low incomes go and get the food. And uh, this was from our London paper um, a few weeks ago, a new campaign set up by the Evening Standard, the newspaper, whose uh, chairman of the board had wanted to set up a charitable foundation after his son, a really, really tragic story. And a really wonderful thing to want to do is to take this waste food and, as I said, give it to people who can't afford food for themselves. How can you counter that? I mean, it, it's such a nice idea aligning waste food with giving food to people who can't afford it. But then you go and talk to people. And again, not very many studies on this, but this is a study from Scotland. And it just says quite simply, clients are reluctant to ask for foods they normally eat. Because they feel so kind of like, someone's giving me this food, I can't complain. I don't have any dignity anymore. I don't have any power anymore. I just have to take what's given to me. So it actually removes personal dignity of the people in this situation. And I remember when I was doing this project, which I did with Jackie Webster, who's in the uh, audience here years ago, uh, in 1999, talking to uh, a man at a homeless shelter. Uh, sorry, no, it was a home for, um, for people who had been um, homeless for a long time. And uh, he was complaining about this surplus food that he'd got because he'd never had smoked salmon in his life. You know, it's this idea that, yes, let's have some smoked salmon, it's delicious, what a treat. But he didn't like smoked salmon, he hadn't used to it. Uh, and, and wasn't happy with it. Now, I can't speak, don't, don't get me wrong, I can't speak for the fact that, that this might not be happening. I'm quoting from my own uh, example, I'm quoting from one paper. I'm using this as an example to show that it can take courage to say, perhaps we should put that ex-homeless man at the centre of our decision-making, his perspective at the centre of our decision-making, rather than meeting the interests of somebody who, with the best will in the world, wants to make a difference. That's an incredibly difficult thing to do, and it takes a lot of courage and leadership to do it. So I want to end with some simple steps towards how I think, and I say simple, it isn't simple, but actually it isn't just about let's go and fix global warming, let's go and fix obesity, it's about how we do things, and we can all of us do things differently. And the first thing that we can do is to make sure that there is integration in our governments, in our businesses, <coughs> and indeed, if we're in civil society or academia, in that realm too. Um, there is some experience building up now that shows that um, just getting everybody in a room to talk doesn't really work because people go away. You need to have people who are employed, whether it's a single person, whether it's a group of people, um, whose job it is to make sure that food system solutions are being implemented across government, whether it's for obesity, whether it's for climate change, um, whether it's for food insecurity, whether it's for food waste, whatever the problem is, every single department of government is relevant to food. And somebody needs to be walking between them, 
saying, what are you doing to address problems in the food system? Or there needs to be some kind of setup like this. And this is a, a diagram um, that was given to me by the Chief, uh, Food Policy Officer for the City of Baltimore in the United States, which recently won an award for its work on food. Um, and it's actually at the city level that we're seeing most of this integration taking place. There's some really interesting work on trying to connect food policy across government departments that's going on currently at the city level. So that's about trying to create coherence between spaces. The second aspect of this is also trying to create the right kinds of spaces where different people come and engage. An example, best example of this I've ever seen is, and that is, is from Brazil. As I said, I studied the National School Meal Programme, but I also studied the whole setup of what's happened there in what's called their Zero Hunger Programme, which has been a comprehensive effort at uh, reducing food insecurity and very successful um, effort in Brazil. And what I noticed when I started to study it is that the laws and regulations seem to change every few months. And you said, well, that's not very good. They obviously put rubbish things into place and had to change them. But it wasn't that. It's because they had something called Conseil, which is the National Council of Advisory on Food Security, where people came together at the national level and at the, more, the, the regional level um, to discuss all of these policies as they were being implemented. And it meant that people were able to report on when things weren't working as well as they should be. So they reflected, they learned, they redefined, they changed. And that's what policy making in food systems needs to be. It needs to be reflective. There's nothing wrong with failing first time around or not doing as well as we should do first time around. But we always have to be open to change. And for that, we need to have these places where people are coming together, including people affected by the problems, who can talk about whether these policies are actually <coughs> working or not. And one of the keys to success in Brazil were these national, uh, national and local councils but also because they decentralised the school meal programme, we actually made it easier for the schools who were delivering the, pro um, the programme to be part of it. Because they were facing pro implementation problems left, right and centre, they were able to come together to talk and then find solutions. And this is what academics called reflective governance. The third is around language. We need to work together to form common languages in which people can talk about their experiences without, wanting to, without getting confused, without getting distracted, and without wanting to run for the door. I'll just give the example of food security here. M many of you may know that there's about 300 different definitions of food security. There's about 300 ways of measuring it. So the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations recently has started a new initiative based on decades of research that was actually conducted in the United States to try and find a metric which is most reliable and comparable between countries. And they found in their analysis that the most comparable and best metric was the one that actually included the voices of the hungry. That actually included when people spoke about their experience of hunger. And that was a common metric that everybody could understand. Fourth, listen. Listen, listen, and then listen again. For the researchers in the room, that means more qualitative research. For the research funders in the room, if there are any, it means funding it, because I know there isn't a lot of money out there for qualitative research, which is an appalling gap. 
because without it, we're not going to be delivering effective policies. This is an example from Amsterdam, the city of Amsterdam. This is data that was released in June 2016, showing a decline in overweight and obesity, particularly among um, school kids with very low socioeconomic status. Now, I cannot say why that is, but I can speculate based on my extensive discussions with the people who work in the city government and the researchers who are extensively involved. This is a great example of researchers working with policymakers. And what they did is they implemented a programme that was, uh, well, it was, a, it was a ban of soft drinks in schools. You think, of course, get rid of soft drinks in schools, that's the way to go. Oh dear, parents are giving their, their kids the soft drinks and then going into schools with the drinks. So the policy just wasn't working. It wasn't being delivered on the ground. So rather than saying, oh, these stupid parents, let's make it even more punitive and fine them or something, they actually went and spoke to the parents. And the parents said, well, I just don't consider water a nutritious thing to drink. And that's all you're giving them in the school. And they had just no, this is a large immigrant population, there's no understanding about what soft drinks did, particularly around dental hygiene in particular. But once there had been a process of engagement which used artistic methods as an education programme, it wasn't just a kind of top-down education, then it began to work and then soft drink consumption began to decline. But it took a process of listening. And finally, what the impression I've tried to give throughout this talk is that we need to humanise the food system. It's not out there, it's here, it's with us. And it means that we can all be leaders and we can all be strong leaders. But it's such an easy place to get lost in. I, I just, I'm, I'm tormenting myself at the moment because I gave my students an essay and I'm new to this teaching the particular course I'm teaching. And it's all about the big questions of food policy. And I've had to see every one of them for at least an hour, plus follow-up emails, because they are so lost. They are so lost because these questions are so big. And yet, yeah, all my students, most of them, are people who have already got experience of working in food in some way or other. And I keep on saying, so how does it connect with your experience? I say, oh, it's got nothing to do with it. This is just my experience. This is like the big stuff. I'm like, no, no, no. What you have experienced is part of the big stuff. It's part of the same thing. So we need to take a, a new approach to the way we're, we're, we're trying to fix food systems and making those decisions by trying to find ourselves by starting with people's lives for a people-centred approach. Thank you. Thank you, Karina. You really set the floor for a great discussion. Um, so before we open um, to the audience generally, we're going to have two short responses. So I'm just going to introduce both of our speakers now. They will each come to the stage, talk for about 10 minutes, and then the whole panel will join us over here and you'll be free to ask questions. I'll start with Dr. Alessandro De Maio, who first trained and worked as a medical doctor in Melbourne before completing a master's in public health and a PhD from the University of Copenhagen, though based on work he did in Mongolia with the Ministry of Health. Sandro has also been a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School and an assistant professor at the Copenhagen School of Global Health. He's a prolific writer, both in academic journals and online. If you're not following him already, he has an enviable Twitter account. Somehow, in his spare time, Sandro founded NCD Free, 
a global social movement against non-communicable diseases whose videos, short films and youth leadership events many of us have been happily roped into. Last year he also founded Festival 21, which is a free celebration of community, food and culture in Melbourne. <coughs> also at the end of last year, Sandra joined the Department of Nutrition for Health and Development at the World Health Organisation as a medical officer and it is in that capacity that he joins us today. I'll also just introduce Deanne before you before start, so that I don't have to get up and down, sorry. <laughs> Deanne Minicon is both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent. She is a specialist in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health promotion, having worked in the field for over 20 years in government and non-government organisations, including the Wood Chopperan Health Service in Cairns, the University of Queensland, the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, Queensland Department of Health and Diabetes Queensland. Deanne has led and advised on a multitude of state and national preventive health programs that target Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We welcome both our respondents. You can see I can't wait to get up and uh, say a few comments. Um, well, I think I, every time I catch a flight now, I'm going to be secretly hoping to get to seat 7A and find Corinna Hawke in seat 7B. I'll be very disappointed um, pretty much every time I, I take a short flight. Um, I was asked to respond to Corinna's talk, and it's possibly one of the hardest things I'll be asked to do this year is to respond to someone I respect and admire and value so much. Um, so I asked a colleague of mine, what, what do you do when you respond to someone? And they said, oh, isn't that when you kind of try to get their talk down to, to three messages? Um, you know, the, the three takeaways. So instead, I'm going to offer three by 3.5 takeaways because uh, for a long time I was an academic and I can't possibly get it down to just three. First of all, I just wanted to reflect as, a, as an Australian how lucky we are to have Karina here tonight um, as a true global leader in this space and, and someone who is really setting the agenda uh, in food policy and food governance globally. Uh, how lucky and fortunate we are to have her and for her to have made the long journey great, uh, to, uh, to the Down Under nation. So the first three I wanted to do was just simply, um, I suppose, distill down my impressions uh, of her um, after her talk. And, and use, I think it's pretty obvious by now to everyone that um, the, three, the three words anyone would have to use if you were to describe sort of Corinna as a, as a thinker Obviously, the first is intelligence. The second is visionary. Um, and the third, though, which I think is quite unique, is a genuine passion. Um, and it's that real cusp, that cusp of the advocate uh, as well as the uh, visionary thinker that, that um, excites so many of us about Corinna's work. So thinking on the plane this morning about the same question, the three challenges, um, I came up with similar, similar ideas, and I wanted to reiterate some of those. First of all, the challenge that we face in the nutrition community and, and, and in, the global, uh, in the global food system is a divergence within food players' uh, siloed agendas. And Karina very nicely outlined whether that's research looking at undernutrition, not talking to people who work in overweight and obesity and NCDs. Even though the two are linked through all sorts of biological and environmental pathways and others that we talked about a little bit today. Whether it's the policy communities and people trying to address cancer, not talking to people who are trying to address food insecurity or food deserts. 
whether it's civil society organisations who do great work and are so important in the policy process, uh, failing to see the connections that they have, the common agendas that they have, with others working in the same space but under a different acronym, different language, different name. Whether it's the funders who fund maternal, child and adolescent health but fail to see that if we don't integrate the overweight obesity agenda, if we don't see that by, uh, by uh, retrofitting the great policies and the great progress we've made on addressing hunger uh, into the programs and, and initiatives that we have, we're going to set whole nations, whole populations up for future obesity and NCDs, whether it's the divergence of over and under, whether it's the divergence of trade and health. The second is the confusion in the public, whether it's more fat, less fat, more sugar, less sugar, salt, paleo, Mediterranean, fruit, whole grains. I work at the global level in nutrition and even sometimes I find it hard to understand what all of these mean. It leaves us vulnerable in a number of different ways as a population and as individuals. Firstly, it leaves us vulnerable to people who have conflicts of interest in seeing us move in a certain direction. It leaves us, leaves us vulnerable to industry. It leaves us vulnerable and confused. It leaves us vulnerable to fads and to short-term uh, solutions that can often do more damage in the long-term than good. And I think most dangerously, it leaves us vulnerable to blame. It leaves us vulnerable to blame on individuals and it leaves us vulnerable to blame on parents. Finally, I think the big challenge is actually going outside of health, outside of nutrition, and looking at the fundamental economic system upon which our food system is based. The whole concept of a syntax, the whole concept of a food tax, is great. It's a great idea, but it's a, it's a terrible narrative. The idea that we're calling something a sin that's not, and the idea that we're calling something a tax that's not. Because our food systems are literally built on borrowed time, and borrowed commodities. They're deferring or externalising debts to tomorrow that we have to be paying today. We can't call it a free market, we can't call it open and, and free uh, informed choices if we buy a can of coke but tomorrow or the next day or next year or in five years we pay two-thirds or one-third of the price. Anyone would end up drinking more and producers would end up producing more a form of market failure that we simply solve through marketing, uh, telling people what to eat and drink. So finally, I want to distill Corinna's talk down to four, the four C's that she talked about. The four things that food systems offer, and if we, took, if we look at food systems as equitable, efficient, sustainable and resilient food systems, the sort of food systems we need in the 21st century. Those four C's that she mentioned were it connects, it catalyzes, it centers, and it gives a reason for courage. So it connects within nutrition, we've talked about that. It connects within health, antimicrobial resistance and infection, pandemic, all related to food. 70% of global antibiotic use used in the food system. It connects to climate change. Anything up to 30% of global greenhouse gases are caused by our food system, more than our transport system. We will never reach the Paris Agreement without changing the way we eat. It reaches beyond, it reaches to human rights. It reaches to the way we, we respect and appreciate and value our children and future generations. It connects law and economics, we've already discussed. It connects the local to the global and it connects people, really importantly. Food connects people. 
Secondly, it catalyzes. It's an opportunity to catalyze action at the global, the national, and the local level. And it's an opportunity to catalyze action at the individual level and at the family nucleus. Third, it's an opportunity for courage. Whether it's the nutrition community who needs to take leadership and frame the narrative ourselves, not talk about sin taxes, but talk about true costing, not talk about marketing and the fact that we as public health community don't have a role in telling people what to eat and drink, but then allowing this, this continuing understanding of marketing to be something different. Marketing is exactly that. When the industry markets to people, it's telling people what to eat and drink. When we try to tell people what to eat and drink, we're, we're accused of nanny statism. We need to own this domain. We need to have the courage to say, hang on a second, that doesn't make sense. And we need to have the courage to challenge words like preferences, as Karina has said. We need to have the courage to set a new agenda, to drive action and not just talk, and we need to have the courage to call out conflicts of interest. And finally, the, the last C, sustainable, equitable, efficient, healthy and resilient food systems offer us an opportunity to centre. To centre our future around our plates, around our policies, but most importantly, around our people. Because as Corinna said, remember, it's about people. Thank you. Firstly, acknowledge our traditional owners on whose land we're meeting on here today as well, and just acknowledge our elders, both past and present, and acknowledge each of the uh, First Nations people in the room um, yeah, tonight. Um, thank you, Karina, um, for your talk. It was fantastic. Look, I'm not a um, food systems expert. Um, in fact, I went around to all my colleagues and my family and said, how do I respond to someone who talks about food systems and I don't even know that language myself. I have experience in Indigenous health and I have experience in working in preventative health and I understand the impact that food has on Aboriginal and people. I understand um, that we have some of the worst health outcomes in this country, if not some in the world. And those experiences and that data that you read in, um, in, in the ABS data um, in reports are things that I experience with my own family, so I understand it and it's been a bit of reality for us. But even working in the spaces, places like Diabetes Queensland, um, I spent a couple of years there delivering um, some programs to Aboriginal people in remote communities and in urban settings. And you know, one of the things that really touched me the most is that we use this um, program called Theatre for Change and we get people to think about, well, what does diabetes mean to you? And they act out what diabetes means to them and they show, show it. And very often, if not in every single place that I've been to, the first thing a person will come up with is an amputated leg, they'll either be blind or they'll play dead. And it's really, it really hits home to say that this is people's realities and when you're talking about illness, this is the first thing they come to, it's, it's normal. And the worst part about these workshops is that very often the community will say, can we bring in the kids as well? And we'll have to say yes. We'll have about 40 kids come into these workshops. And the first thing they say when we ask the kids who are in primary school, 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids, what does diabetes mean to you? And the first thing they do is put their hand up and say, you die. And the second thing they say is, you get your foot cut off. There is no management. There is no prevention thinking. This is normal. And food has a lot to play in this, in this part of where we are today in terms of our health outcomes. And it's the reason why I work in this space to make sure that we do try to change you know, um, health outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, looking at those three points that Karina had talked about around the policy making, around language and the leadership, all these things are very important. Past policy, if you look at Australian history, has impacted on how Aboriginal and Islander people um, access food from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to a group of people through past policy being shifted onto missions and then given rations, so high salt, high sugar, there's lots of flour, and less access to traditional foods. And so that's what we have our conversations now. You go on Facebook and you see a lot of Aboriginal people, young people say, oh, we've got our, you know, our black on food now, and it's tinned meat, and it's rice, and it's fried scones, and it's all these things that have been passed down to us through past policies and what we've been taught, um, what we've been taught through our missions. And those policies still impact today on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Even our traditional foods is this saturated in soya sauce and you know high salt types of foods. And we really need to consider when we're making policy up to change those things. Access to some of those store foods. Now in, in Queensland, um, our Queensland government owns probably six of the remote stores in Queensland. Um, and they are key in getting food to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. In some places, like my sister-in-law who lives in far north Queensland in a little town called Cohen, can sometimes go weeks without food in the store being delivered. They go down to rations, right down into the toilet paper being rationed in the store. That's how bad it is. Well, we've got a government that runs these, some of these stores who doesn't talk to the health department to talk about what we can do. There's some fantastic workers out there in the public health nutrition space that are working with stores to try and improve those food supply, food supply and teach people how to cook. But those policy makers, like we mentioned before, and I've been in a department where I've sat with the store people who, the people who create those policies around those stores and have heard them talk and not even relate the health outcomes in the way that they do their business. And I think about in our health, even in our own health policies, and we want to close the gap in our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander health, and we write up a whole heap of documents around how we can improve health outcomes for Aboriginal Islander people. And very rarely, if ever, when we do include, um, we talk about Indigenous health improvements, we've probably got about a paragraph of nutrition in there. And our funding to improve nutrition outcomes is like this big. It's just not good enough when we think about the impact that food has on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's lives. Language, when we think about um, health and what does health mean to each of us, and in some cases, you know, health is being that well. For Aboriginal and Islander people, it's more than just physical well-being, it's about social, emotional, cultural well-being of a whole community in which that individual lives. It's about not just being well physically, it's about if that community's not well, then I'm not well. And people have said that. 
It's about linking those, that wellness to their cultural belief systems. So when we talk about food and we talk about hunter and gatherers, we still have hunters up in the Torres Strait and across the coast in, those, um, in a number of communities. And one of the things that they tend to do is hunt for turtle and dugong, and that's a food source because sometimes in those remote communities that's the only meat you're going to get because very rarely do you get fresh meat up there. So this is their, and it's really good meat. Um, and when I talk about people go, ooh, that's not very nice. And it's actually cruel. Well, it's not cruel. It's actually, that's part of our culture. And that's the only source of meat that we tend to use. But it's not just meat. It's not just food for us. There's more to that particular animal. That animal is medicine as well. And so with that, every single part of that animal will be used in some form. It just doesn't eat, we just don't eat the meat. We use the meat, we use the dual oil for medicine. So when my grandparents' part were um, both diagnosed with cancer, my, they both used to drink the dugong oil to make sure um, that they would try and manage their cancer through that. My grandmother had some pain in her arm from where the fluid would build up and the dugong oil would heal her arm and make it less painful for her in that time. So those types of animals and those types of foods that are in our land and our sea are more than just food to us. There's that spiritual connection, it's part of our healing as well. Um, and so when we're telling people, when you're eating meat, just cut the fat off or just cut, you know, and only this part of it, it, it doesn't make sense to a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That is a part of that sustainability that if you don't eat the whole animal or you don't use every part of that animal, then that animal is unlikely to come back and then we don't have that anymore. So it's really important. And that leadership. We do, I've, I've been arguing for a very long time. If you look at out in my bio at the moment, it's Deanne worked in health, and then Deanne worked over in policy, and then Deanne worked over in education. So currently I'm an education person, and I've gone from a state role and national role down to a regional role. And the reason for that is because um, I'm making up policy in state that I don't get to talk to people. We just sort of, look at the paper and we make up as we go, this is what we think we need. And, I've, and it's quite embarrassing for me as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person to advise on policy without talking to my people about what should we do. So I've gone home for a little while to try and start talking to people about what do we need to do at the statewide level. Now, look, I, I'm a government person based on the fact that I think if we want to make changes, you've got to be in it to make those changes, particularly around policy, and there's not enough of us in there and I'll do it until you know we can try and make some changes and more people come into that policy space. But we do definitely need to be there to influence. Um, and we do need to be more um, integrated. And back in the, back when we had a government change in Queensland, um, one of the governments recently had just slashed completely their preventative health um, workforce in Queensland and we were really sad to, for that loss. So we had a lot of people working in the nutrition field that just didn't have jobs. And my response to that, which has been a consistent response, is, well, let's go into those other sectors. Let's go and influence those private sectors. Let's go and influence education and agriculture and justice, wherever we can do, the lawmakers. Let's start influencing those. Health people, we talk to health, we talk about health, we know our business well enough. But now it's time to try and influence those other areas and go out there and make some change. So um, 
I think as uh, Australians, I think we're all responsible for improving Indigenous health. There's not enough of us to make that change. I think in any part of your work, try to make it your core business to try and address some of those disparities amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Indigenous people. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, such a, a rich, um, such rich material and, and perspectives. And on that note, we do have still about ten minutes, so we'd like to open the floor uh, for questions. We have microphones, so I would ask that you would raise your hand, and because we are recording it too, we'll send someone around so that we can capture you. about how they invited in the people 
um, to give evidence on food insecurity in a particular part of the United States. And um, they weren't thinking about the fact that um, there was a lot of single women um, in that childcare. Uh, so there was all kinds of barriers that were turning up. And the one did turn up, and she had a child with her. The child was not used to being in a public space like that and was hungry. And um, cried the whole time, so the woman wasn't able to participate. So we can't be patronising and saying the way it is to invite these, these people in and we'll tell them all about food and then they're going to feel really powerful about it and, and feel like they want to do something. So it's, it's even more challenging than that. Um, I think it's, it has to start by some kind, of, it's a, some kind of listening process. I don't think people feel like they have a stake in food at all. I think they just feel like they go to the supermarket and get it, and quite often many people are perfectly happy with that. I don't want to patronise people and suggest that they're not, some people are. Um, but they don't really feel it's anything they have a stake in, um, and, um, and that and no one's really going to listen to them. Um, so I think the first thing is just to set up kind of some processes which are very difficult for the reason they've been given. Something where people feel that they're, they're being listened to. I don't know what that is. Um, my my neighbours will probably have better ideas than me, but something that makes people feel they have a stake. There was one over here. My name is Bernard Stewart, and I edited World Cancer Report for WHO in both 2003 and 2014. <coughs> and just, I, I seek to ask a question and comment on the, this challenge of communication, because it seems to be not only is difficulty in communication between silos or disciplines. But even within the discipline we can have problems. I'm conscious that between 2003 and 2014, the major risk factor for cancer started to transition from tobacco smoke to obesity. And within the cancer prevention community, there were many who attempted to, and are attempting, to apply exactly the same principles in respect of prevention that were successful in tobacco smoke to the mediators of obesity. And this has communication problems, even at the absurdity of labeling obesity as a carcinogen and attempting to apply the paradigms we have about carcinogens to what is a piece of physiology. So uh, I, I don't know whether you can comment on this, Karim, but it seems to me that this problem of communication and understanding is something that not only is it limiting when we go outside our discipline, it seems to be it's even limiting within the preventive health community itself. I'd like to pass over to my neighbours because I've, I've uh, uh, spoken and I think they can talk well about communication. And just to make the point that I agree with you, that often it is actually within our own communities, as somebody said, that often fractured. And I remember when I was working for World Council Research Fund International, my previous position, um, talking to someone who worked on smoking and they really weren't happy at all with, with what we were doing uh, highlighting some of the world of obesity uh, because it, it seemed to be against uh, the interest and he was worried that food would take away from tobacco heavens and well, I hope it doesn't do that, you know, that that's, we don't want to do that at all um, but I think we can often see barriers because we, we fear for scarce resources um, and that's why it, um, it takes courage not, not to do that and to actually think how can we actually work together. Um, but you're right, it is, a, it is a real challenge, but please. I mean, we actually talked about this today a little bit, so we had a, um, a lecture again on nutrition and cancer and the interplay between the two. Um, I think 
if we look at food versus the food industry, we need to first of all um, tease out those two. Uh, and then we need to tease out the food industry as a, as a large heterogeneous group of you know, good, bad and otherwise. So in terms of when we're looking at cancer and we're looking at tobacco and food, I, I think it's, I agree with you, I think it's um, not, way, not helpful necessarily to compare food and tobacco and, and, and there have been examples of uh, public health community at times um, presenting information that was miscommunicated and, and caused a lot of confusion in the public. I do though think that if we look at not so much food as, um, as an entity versus tobacco as an entity, but the two industries, the, the food industry and certain parts of the food industry and the tobacco industry, and that's what we discussed today, one can draw analogies and similarities and start to see even patterns, similar patterns in the behaviours of the tobacco industry dating back to the 1950s and, and the different uh, avenues and behaviours that they exhibited to stall uh, public policy, research, investment, action, uh, public uh, will across the board, all, all of the, the different areas that we know it takes to bring about sound and comprehensive policy change. We see similarities between the actions uh, and investments of the tobacco industry in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, it sounds like a radio show, um, and the food industry, and certain parts of the food industry. That's not to say that food is the same as tobacco. I don't think we should, we should say that at all. And as I said, drinking soft drink, I don't think we should be framing it even as a sin. Uh, if, if you drink a soft drink next to someone else, it's not the same as smoking next to someone else. And if you drink a soft drink on an aeroplane, it's not the same as smoking on an aeroplane. But the two industries, there are, I think, helpful uh, lessons that can be drawn from the behaviours and the public health responses that were, some would argue, were, were too slow to tobacco, and the behaviours and, um, and the measures now that we're seeing from parts of the food industry. And I think that's quite a helpful and healthy analogy to draw. Thanks, Andrew. I'm really conscious of the time, and we are running at time. I'll just offer a final call if there are any brief burning questions or any quick comments from the rest of the panel. Okay, so please join me again in thanking our three wonderful speakers. <laughs>